0: Hello, everyone, to the Living the Grace Life podcast, as always. I'm your host, Jim Hobbs, and next to me... As always, lead pastor of Grace Life Church in Snowbird-filled Sarasota. Yes, it is, <laughs> Joe. How are you? How are you? I'm doing good, Joe. A lot of snowbirds down in Sarasota this time of year, so it's uh, exciting to see it take you know half an hour to go down the road.
1: Yeah, but it is worth <laughs> it because I hear all my friends complain about the weather in places like Indiana, and I just tell
0: oh them, boy, don't I, even I, yeah. I, them, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just care. came back from the 65. Five to fourteen degrees in six hours, but you don't care. So.
1: Well, again, it's 76 today, <laughs> but it's cold because the feels like it's 75. So.
0: I am so happy right. to be back. So, and I'm so happy that on this episode of Living the Grace Life, we will answer the question, actually, Joe, that you raised in our last podcast. What is prayer? And do we have too narrow of a definition of it? Because in my mind, I was thinking, well, if God is sovereign, why? in a way, do we have to pray? I know what it's like when I pray and and I like it, but why do we have to? So we'll get to that. We'll also look at a workbook question to chapter one of Pastor Joe's book, The Grace Life, what Philippians teaches us about loving one another relentlessly. Just be sure to get your copy out there on Amazon so you can follow along with us. So this is going to be the chapter one workbook and some great, this week, Joe. Great listener emails and Q&A telling you all kinds of just incredible deep questions. I'm so happy people are, are relating to what we're saying, and we're also going to let you know how you can receive a signed copy of Pastor Joe's book. All of that coming up in this edition of the Living the Grace Life Podcast. But Joe, first, you you did this to yourself. You know, you did. Yeah, ap- I, know. I know.
1: You did, I did do this.
0: Does that happen to you sometimes?
1: <laughs> I always do things to
0: myself. Yeah. <laughs> this is the question that you asked. That we you said we would talk about this. So this really kind of tweaked my <laughs> imagination here. What is prayer, and do we have too narrow of a definition of it? Because I began to think about that, and so much about what prayer can mean to someone can be very different to someone else. Versus some can say it's a request list. Some look at it as spending close time with God. And then my question became, if God is sovereign, if, every, if he is in charge, well, what is going on during that time? Do we, do we really have to do that? So how would, I mean, when you say prayer too narrow of a definition, what, I guess what definition are you thinking of is, is too narrow?
1: I have a lot of passion about this topic because um, those that know me know that I have intense, severe ADHD. <laughs> so uh, the the church definition of prayer, even as a pastor has always been um, a measure of a burden to me. I mm-hmm. always carried guilt when it came to prayer, even as a pastor, because I had been taught what the definition of prayer was quiet room, head bowed, eyes closed, start off with Heavenly Father has to end with Amen. If you don't end with Amen, then it's not gonna, it's like not pushing the send button on a text message, you know, and let me give you an example, just a one example, then it might be a jumping point off to a broader discussion. Last night, I was at uh, a hockey game uh, in Tampa with a really good friend of mine, and uh, we had a blast. Mm. And, you know, we were, we had these really nice seats. It's club level seats with so all the food you can eat. You know, it's incredible. You know, great view of the ice and, you know, the lightning are a good team. So we're having fun. Uh, the house is packed. And as I was sitting there, I didn't know we were going to talk about this topic today. You spring these on me at the last second. And I was thinking about the, the, the verse in the Bible where we are commanded to pray without ceasing. I said, well, how in the world am I supposed to pray at this game? I mean, if we are told to pray without ceasing, then clearly we have a legalistic, narrow, constricting definition of prayer. And it's probably not what was meant when we were told in Scripture to pray without ceasing.
0: Hmm.
1: And I began to think about it last night. Man, I am enjoying this game. And this has been a great prayer time.
0: So you're saying, in effect, while watching that game, just by watching it, you were, by definition, the new definition here, you were, in effect, praying. Now, is that the same as worship?
1: There's a book that I read uh, years and years ago that really impacted my thought process on prayer, and it's called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Okay. And you can get it on Amazon, but I, I think there's a law that you can't buy that one until you've bought The Grace Life by Joseph Davis. <laughs> I think you have to buy my book first. Some piece um, of yeah, yeah, legislation. There's, there's, a, there's a, a loophole. <laughs> but um, Brother Lawrence uh, in that book discusses what it means to practice the presence of God. And really what prayer is, after I read his book and I began to look at some other scripture and just started studying this many years ago, what I realized is that prayer is just enjoying the presence of God or acknowledging the presence of God, whether it be in your speech, uh, whether it be in your fellowship, whether it be in your thoughts, whether it be in your reading, prayer is acknowledgement and practicing of the presence of God on a continual basis. Because if you think about it, if we are really going to fulfill that command of scripture to pray without ceasing, mm-hmm. then it has to be the practice of the presence of God. It has to be, because if it's just the definition of prayer that we've been given, then we're going to get into accidents while we're driving. People are going to say, why aren't you looking at me when I'm talking to you? Well, I'm because I'm praying. You know, it doesn't work with your wife. It's not going to work with other people. You know what I mean? And so you, if, if we really are going to pray without ceasing, then we have to understand that perhaps we don't have a full definition of what prayer is. Certainly, it can be those quiet, contemplative, reflective times where we go to God with requests or we seek God, God, please reveal this to me or God, please bless this person or heal this person. Certainly, that is prayer. But that is not all that prayer is.
0: So reading scripture, let's say, so spending quiet time with God and focusing really on what it is that we feel, okay, God, I'm reading scripture. What is it that you want me to take away from this? What is it that I need to hear from you right now? That is not necessarily just called reading scripture or just called quality time with god that could also then fall into the definition you're saying of prayer because in the sense if we have to be never ceasing in our prayer that could be a component of prayer and in that case there are many components
1: yes i want to make sure very clear i'm not discounting quiet contemplative what we would see more uh spiritual discipline act of prayer that is certainly a significant part of what prayer is. So I'm not discounting that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is prayer is not just that. It is time in the word of God. Uh, it is time reflecting upon. it. See, I view meditation and prayer as very similar. Ah. Okay. And a matter of fact, I would say that prayer is almost a byproduct of meditation. Uh, meditation, is, meditation is not constrained to just quiet time either meditate. Sometimes in my spiritual walk with God, there are days I want to have a loud time with God. And that fits my personality good too, you know? (laughs) Sometimes, how was your quiet time today? I didn't have a quiet time with God. I had a loud time with God. Sometimes it can be my favorite music. Uh, It could be riding my bike, whatever. It could be a lot of different things.
0: Yeah, it doesn't really, I guess, in the sense that if we look at, let's say, the Psalms. So in Psalm One, I mean, right out of the gate, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So, so much written in the psalms can be loud time like you're saying there's david in a lot of them pouring out his heart god why have you forsaken me god what what have i done here he's recognizing his sin uh, on you know so you're saying that prayer time can be equal to meditation in the sense of the way it's written here in the psalm that would say lord i want to meditate on who you are day and night i want To delight in the law of the Lord, meaning I want to be that close to you. So is that, in a sense, the relationship and the communion you're building there with Christ is something that can maybe only happen through this meditation or prayer?
1: Well, the answer to the question is yes. Your law have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, you have this phrase in the scripture you just read, meditate therein day and night. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you see how, if we take that in a literal fashion, as we have defined meditation in the church today, can you see how that would be extremely discouraging and intimidating for some people? Yes. I'm not even close to meditating on God's Word. I might meditate, according to the definition we've been taught, 10 minutes a day. If I'm really good, maybe an hour. You know, people who have ADD, it's hard, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. dear God, thank you for this day. Oh, that's a nice squirrel. Oh, wait a minute. Got to yep. start over now. Yep. For years, I carried such guilt and discouragement because my prayer life didn't match up to those that we call, and I don't know where we get this term from, prayer warriors. Mm-hmm. And so now when somebody comes to me and they say, pastor, I'm really struggling. I don't pray enough. And I'll say, okay, well, let's go through and let's let's figure out if that's really true. Mm. And so you go through and you begin to think about, do you really pray enough? Now, if you're never thinking about God at all during your day, if you're never thinking about your connection with Heavenly Dad, if you're never speaking to Him ever, then yeah, it may be the case. But I love Ephesians 2, particularly 9, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we walk into. I usually like to say that we trip over. (laughs) Clearly, one of those things is prayer and meditation. And time with God,
0: and if He prepared beforehand this time, then and He's sovereign, can we get away from it? So that kind of goes in oh, then into my great. question, right? Because then, why wait? I don't even have to, I not only do I not have to guilt or shame myself, hey, I'm not praying enough, but wait, God kind of had an idea as to how much I, if He knows the hairs on my head and He's already ordained this life of There's mine, so much you know, there. like There's what? There's so much
1: there. So a couple things that we'll, we'll hit on that. First of all, God's desires to be with His people. That's why the temple wasn't the best place. He had to be there because of sin, but now we are the temple. Mm. So now He's with us constantly, right? And I love the fact when I'm thinking about prayer and, and all that stuff, um, you were talking about, you were talking about Him, you know, ordaining before the foundation of the world, I just love the fact that when I spend time with my God, I recognize that he has sought me out. Let me explain. There's a lot of churches, they call themselves seeker churches. Well, it's kind of strange because really God is the seeker. No man seeks God on his own. That's a concept in scripture. Mm -hmm. And so in reality, what happens is when we spend time with God, we have this mindset, well, I'm seeking time with God. Well, that's kind of arrogant. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. The one before that says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. Even that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God or else you'd brag. So you can see how if prayer is really instigated by us going after God, there's room for arrogance there.
0: Right. Because then it's you doing the act of coming to Christ versus the act of God coming toward you.
1: Yes. And so... For me, I am so thankful that my God sought me, found me, and continues to come after me day after day, hour after hour, minute by minute, second by second. Uh, All that the Father has given me will come to me and no man can pluck them out of my hand. I just love the fact that my time with God is a direct result of His sovereign grace, put upon me. And frankly, this is how it kind of ties back into this this theory of the grace life. Prayer and meditation are byproducts of the grace life. And what is grace? It is undeserved favor.
0: Yeah, it leads me right to the prodigal son story. I think in a sense the way I'm picturing what you're saying here is okay, I've lived in this case of the prodigal son, I asked for my inheritance early. Hey, Dad, I know that you're uh, still alive, but I'm, let's just kind of pretend that you're dead. Give me half of what it is that I will receive. Then I go off. I squander it. I act crazy. But then in that story, he then comes to terms with his sin. He sees, oh my goodness, I, there's I, what have I done? He turns, in a sense. He repents. He turns toward home. It says, and that's where the father, as he turns toward home and starts walking, the father comes running because he's been waiting. As you said here, the father is there. He's been following. He's been waiting. And he doesn't wait for the son to come to him. He rushes toward him. In that, But doesn't the son have to turn? So is there, in that sense, don't we still have the ability? We have to make the decision to, oh, my goodness, I've got to turn and look to see he's yeah, still so there?
1: I think. Well, I not think, I'm confident that every turn is a miraculous act of grace. Anytime anyone turns for God or turns to God, it's not because they somehow mustered up enough gumption in their life to somehow finally, okay, now I'm going to grab hold of faith. And I'm, because turning to God is really faith. Now I'm going to believe. Well, then that's not faith being a gift. See, I believe every time somebody makes that turn, It is a miraculous act of God intervening. And get this, it is God intervening in your life at that moment. How could anything be more exciting than that? Oh, yeah. That's the most exciting part about grace is that it is God supernaturally, sovereignly intervening in your life, even when you did not want to seek him. He says, oh, yes, you do. And to me, the turn is also prayer. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is a gift of God.
0: The turn is prayer. That's very interesting. And
1: in addition, it is one of those good works he prepared beforehand that we trip over.
0: That's something I I never thought about it that way. The turn is prayer because there's the story where Christ is walking after the resurrection and the two guys on the road and they don't know that he's standing there, you know, and they're, what do you mean, dude? Are you the only guy that doesn't know what's been happening in this town? And then they they break bread they oh what do you know it's it's christ he's been hiding himself from them and then what do they do they turn they turn back to go back to town to tell everyone what it is that they just we just walked with the living christ this is unbelievable you're saying that in that aspect that moment of the turn is truly a moment of maybe not even just prayer or grace, but but transformation. It's it's almost all of those kind of combined in one.
1: It's funny because I love Ephesians 2 again. In the beginning, for you, we all once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy, mm. while we were dead, yes. quickens us and makes us alive. Dead people can't turn. Only people that are made alive can turn. Now, remember, in context, that is Ephesians 2. And later on in that same chapter, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we walk into. Ah. So he's talking about people who walk in darkness. And down here, he's talking about people who walk in faith. So we're all walking. But the transformation comes when we are quickened and made alive. Dead people can't turn.
0: Yeah, that, that opens up to me a whole nother way that Paul talks about that we are in the living Christ. So, in essence, this idea of us giving up our life, being totally vulnerable, intimate, and sacrificial like we talked about, and then understanding that without Christ, we are dead. Dead. Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead, but only through Christ. And because of what then he's done— is because of who we then become, right? Isn't Paul really saying that because Christ was risen, you, in fact, have been risen with him? And that's a confusing, I think, concept for a lot of people because, wait, well, Christ was risen, but now I've got to love the law. I've got to do these things. You know, I I need to act a certain way, but it sounds like from a grace-driven life, we look to Christ who has been resurrected and that in and of itself is enough. Is that?
1: Well, that look to Christ is a supernatural action that we have been given the ability to do because of grace. So you say when, you know, we look to Christ, it's not because we have decided to look to Christ. Christ enabled us to look at him because dead people can't look either. Mm -hmm. See, we're not, I love the illustration. uh, We are not like in the ocean, About to drown, head barely above water, Jesus throws us a life preserver and we grab hold of it. That's not it. We did drown. We sunk to the bottom. There's no air in our lungs. And he goes down and pulls us up and breathes new life into us and makes us alive again.
0: Jonah, right? Three days down, pulls, rescues us. That whole. And as that, so that relationship then that we have with Christ, you always use the words heavenly dad. Versus Heavenly Father, or Gracious God, or some of these ways that are a little bit more formal. Why it does feel much more of a relationship when you do use that, like a really a closer bond. Why do you do that?
1: Yeah. So this will be another topic for another uh, podcast. So you might want to write this go. down. <laughs> but the reason I use the term Heavenly Dad instead of God is because I believe that the salvation process is really one of adoption. It is all through the New Testament. It's an undeniable theology that we were dead, our spiritual, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, Ephesians 2, again, says that we were just like him who works in the power of the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience indicates that these were children of disobedience. Mm -hmm. Imagine being a child and your dad not only doesn't like you, but hates you and wants to kill you but your new heavenly dad adopts you so that we can have the spirit of adoption with which we cry out, the scripture says, Abba, which is Hebrew for daddy.
0: Romans eight.
1: Yeah, but we will talk about that on another podcast.
0: So I guess, Joe, to, to wrap that up then, does, we got to go back almost to the original a question that, I mean, do we do we have to pray? I mean, it sounds if God like— God is
1: sovereign, do we have to pray? Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess yes is the—
1: Well, the good news is we will pray <laughs> because God is sovereign. <laughs> Prayer is not something we have to do. Prayer, in its broader definition that we established, mm-hmm. is something we get to do. We get to enjoy the presence of our daddy, and it is a privilege. Prayer is a privilege that those who are connected to the Father get to participate in. It is not a job. Yes, so so yes. prayer is beneficial, and we pray for people. But even when we pray for people, it's important to understand. That's a good work, which God prepared beforehand uh-huh. that we walk into. It is not, well, you know, I know this may get a lot of people upset. I've always kind of bristled at the term prayer warrior. hmm that indicates that, well, some people are better prayers than other. I just, that, I, that always, it never sat well with me.
0: Maybe the way you look at that word, too, or warrior to be, like, if this is something that we are inherently meant to do, it, it maybe wouldn't be a struggle. And maybe that's another.
1: Prayer is a privilege that is an act of a sovereign God working in our life. And he gets the credit even for our prayers. I just don't think there's any room in prayer for human accomplishment,
0: Mm, mm-hmm
1: does that make sense
0: it does it makes all the sense in the in the world and i think he's the one like you said that has allowed it to be that way there wouldn't be some sort of what what's the accomplishment in being a son connecting to your father there isn't necessarily an accomplishment there's only a blessing like, why, why would you not do especially that? It'd be like well, what are you doing yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. you wouldn't want to you want to want to miss that, but in doing that, you have to be so vulnerable. I think because the way you say "Heavenly Dad," there's such a vulnerability in that. By saying, "Okay, well, I have been adopted," I, I have to. We have to get vulnerable. We have to get intimate. And actually, that that kind of leads to a question that you have here in chapter one in the workbook. Which I love the workbook section because you really got to go back and think about. And this is from Philippians one. We've already now gone through the book. We've looked at it, and we say, "Okay." You asked the question, why is building a culture of vulnerability so difficult for churches? How can you establish one in your church or fellowship? And the first thing that I thought of when I read this was, is it going to be safe? But safety in the sense, not, oh, is everybody going to like me? Am I going to be accepted? Not necessarily that, but there are a lot of situations where vulnerability is not safe. Um, you know, like my wife, she immigrated from Poland when she was 12. And being vulnerable in a new culture, in a new society, in a place where you don't speak the language, let me tell you, it ain't safe. It is as far from safe as you can get. In fact, it's trauma. And in that trauma, you learn a way to adapt and to cope. And so your new coping skills that you learned where it wasn't safe to be vulnerable or all of a sudden now, wait a minute, I, I, last time I was vulnerable here, I got burned and I don't want to go down that path. But yet we know in a safe environment, me and you here talking, it's safe for us to be vulnerable because we have an understanding of each other. So how how do right, we so know, vul- right?
1: Vulnerability. I look at vulnerability as a gift that I can give to others to minister to them. Mm. So when I am vulnerable with someone, whether it's you or another person in our church or whatever, or Wayne in the studio here, if I'm going to be vulnerable with someone it's because in my heart, I want to have a connection with this person that allows me the chance to serve them. And so one of the best ways to connect with someone is to be vulnerable. Okay. So Mm -hmm. let me make sure that we understand vulnerability is a gift that you give to someone else. I'll give another example you ask is sometimes vulnerability is not safe. As leaders in our church, whenever there comes a moment where there's somebody in our church that is struggling, Mm. maybe it's an area of sin or whatever, and it comes to the point where we feel like there might be an opportunity where some of us, one of us has to confront. Mm. The first question I ask is, has anybody at this table earned the privilege?
0: Interesting. Have you
1: earned the privilege? Have you spent time with it? Have you been vulnerable with it? It's, it's not fair for us to ask someone to be vulnerable when we confront them, if we have never been vulnerable with them. And so the question begins with, has anyone earned the privilege? And if they have, how have you earned the privilege? Well, I was vulnerable in this area. We did this. So I spent this time. If nobody can answer the question, yes, I've earned the privilege. Then my response is, well, until we have We may not have the right to do what we want to do as far as confrontation. Earn the privilege first.
0: Wow. So the first step of vulnerability in that case is not to go to someone in a compassionate way and say, hey, listen, because I can see you got a problem, I'm going to be now vulnerable in the way that we're thinking of it and try to help you here. It's the opposite. It's you really then come right out of the gate you're the first one to pull the trigger on vulnerability then, and you get close and you develop that relationship. Are you saying that then that means someone has to really go first and be vulnerable?
1: If we as leaders cannot be honest with people that we struggle with sin, then we are not modeling vulnerability, intimacy, and sacrifice in any way. Because I'm not saying that we glorify sin. That's that is right. not what I'm saying. We covered that, yeah. But I want to make sure that if we feel like as leaders, we have a responsibility to walk alongside someone who's struggling. Uh, we have we better have earned the right first.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's where it starts then. It doesn't start, oh, I see a problem, let's talk about it. It's begin, and that's by relationship, you're saying, because there really isn't, because re- then you, you write, what needs to change before followers of Christ can be truly open with each other? It sounds like what needs to change is, are you saying that the people who are going to address someone within the congregation need to get vulnerable first to then begin this type of fellowship and relationship?
1: If leadership is not creating a culture of vulnerability, then what's going to happen is their church ethos, their community will be a culture of religion and not grace. I I just believe that grace gives us the freedom to give other people the gift of our vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Most most of the people in our church that know me at all, if I ask them, I said, give the top three areas that Pastor Joe struggles with, they'll be able to name them off, and they won't offend me. We'll laugh about it. You're right. I do struggle with you that. You better
0: hope they come up. <laughs> and then I tell them it's their responsibility
1: and duty that That's, to pray for me. No, I'm just kidding.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, well, so. you kind of do in a sense. Okay, so here at the end of the workbook, action. Think of some of the good things God has done for you and is doing now. Whom has he used to bless you in the past? Then you say, take time to pray for those people and ask him to show you how you could bring a blessing to others. When you're saying in this case, take time to pray, what type of prayer are you referring to?
1: Well, in that respect, I'd be referring to uh, the, the narrower definition of prayer that many people think encompasses prayer. So it's a good thing that you asked that question because it makes sure it it, it drives home the point again that I'm not saying that prayer isn't Those Mm -hmm. times where we're quiet, contemplative, going to the Father with requests, especially interceding for other people. Paul talked about that all the time. He talked about it in the book of Philippians. I thank thank God every time I remember you. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. definitely prayer. So in that respect, I'm asking people to take on the mind of a shepherd who has blessed you. Think of some of the things, good things God has done for you and is doing, whom has he used to bless you in the past. And at that point, You want to pray for those people that God has already used to bless you and say, God, how can I be a blessing to them? I have found that the times that I have been the most encouraging to other people is not when I imparted them my vast pastoral theological wisdom and discernment. It's when I got down with them and I said, I struggle with the same thing you do. As a matter of fact, yesterday, here's how I struggled with it. And I name it. Yeah. And I don't glorify it. I just say, look, I'm like Paul. The things I don't want to do, I do the things I'm supposed to do, I don't want to do. (laughs) Wretched man that I am, I'm back and forth. And so for me, that is the culture of vulnerability that we have to produce in our churches if we're going to really understand what it means to live the grace life. Right?
0: Yeah, there's a likeness when it comes to—and understanding someone has walked this road before— you know, knowing that they've been there and done that. Great. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you, there's only a way to relate to that type of audience, I think, especially if you've had that struggle Jim, as well. Jim, this is,
1: this is why I love, um, we have a, a really cool recovery community in our church. This is why I love the recovery you community do. so yeah. much. Because they have modeled for me what it means to have non-religious vulnerability, mm. Christ-like vulnerability. In the way they interact with one another. Uh, and the stakes are high, obviously, in their lives. And they recognize that. But I've just been blown away with their vulnerability. And uh, I've been jealous of it. I've mm. told them that. I Interesting, said, I'm yeah. jealous. I'm not jealous of your struggle and your burden, but I'm jealous of the benefits it has reaped in your life.
0: It can, right? I mean, that's the only way I think it. you get taught to be real. And until you, and it's part of the last episode we had, seeing your sin, you know, that's the, the recovery. And so one of those words, recovery, that's always a struggle for me because I have had a long, long time struggle with alcohol over the years, which uh, we can talk about another show. But when I eventually went to treatment for it about 18 months ago, the... Well, the one, everyone called me the theologian in there. You would, uh, that would have not been good. <laughs> I didn't know what I was talking about. But like you said, the idea that from a Christ-driven standpoint, we are going to now sit here and talk about what it is that's caused us and others all around us all this pain. I mean, no one else can then relate in that aspect. If we aren't getting real, there's there's no reason to have a conversation. And so what we then recover as addicts, what they call in, in recovery, um, something we never had. And I think there's something very biblical about that. We we never knew that life w- could be worth living or lived in a way like
1: this. The question is, can you think of those whom in your life that God has used to bless you? And my first answer to that would be the people in our recovery community. That's great. Think about that. The people in our recovery community, God has used them in big, I mean, He used other people, of course, sure, but he, he's used them in a huge way to bless me And so my response is to take the time to pray for those people. It's exactly what Paul did. He says, I thank God every time I think about you. And that's prayer. And so for me, I am praying for them because when I think about the recovery community, my natural response is, man, God, thank you for my new friends.
0: Right. Nonstop. It's on your mind all the time. It's so true because without that recovery piece then, without you seeing it from their eyes, like you said, there is you know it's like aa or whatever someone'll say well you, you know do, do you like going to aa the answer is well well yeah and well does that make you not drink well well no the idea is the, the fellowship and the camera like
1: the community. It's
0: a it's a new. It, it's literally a biblical story, and this is probably why you're you get jealous of seeing that it is the biblical narrative condensed into this piece where we all say we're helpless uh, with this uh, addiction. But all of us out there are dealing with types of addictions or habits or hangups, and we're all trying to get out from under that. So really, the idea that we can do that only by stating how powerless and weak that we are to it that you. Then connect to, I think, and you see that vulnerability in someone because in our weakness there, we are truly strong. And everyone gathered in a room. I mean, I just left one at St. Armand's here in Sarasota, 150 people. I mean, it's like and everyone in there knows everyone, they support everyone, and there's nothing not authentic about what's going on at that meeting. And when you live that open and that authentically, Jim, you know, it goes changes. It goes back
1: to what we were saying before. The turn is prayer. I tell people in recovery every time, you know, that moment that you finally decided it was time to get clean. That was supernatural. It's supernatural. And it is a result of prayer because that is connection to Heavenly Dad. So for
0: sure. Yeah, mine was. I can relate. Mm hmm. We've got quite a listening audience, I can tell you, Joe, because even though we see the, the hundred uh, plus downloads uh, each week and this and that, the the questions I'm getting, are just, it's so thought-provoking. I'm so excited. This one, this week comes from Brian, and it, this is, it's a great question. I'm just going to read it. Jim and Pastor Joe, I'm loving the podcast so far. I'm committed to reading along with the book as you two go through it. I downloaded it, see, that's what everybody can do, through Audible and through reading it on my phone. Uh, I'm really in, enjoying this. So I appreciated Jim sharing authentically about his moment of surrender. I've experienced my own shower scene, which as I re- refer to it, if you will. I will agree that we are closest to Christ when we have given up, given up the story that we create about ourselves, a victim of circumstance, success in business. These moments strip me of what I have considered my identity. My true identity is that I belong to God Aligning myself with God's will and, as Pastor Joe says, being satisfied with his presence gives me joy, acceptance, and serenity. I am closest to Christ when I have given up, when I am beaten. So, would you say suffering is a result of living in opposition to what is? That tends to be the way I see it. While pain is physical, suffering seems to be a mental condition. How would you say one should best practice acceptance in the face of life's day to day challenges to remain or remember to be Christ conscious? It's often difficult to interrupt my thinking in these times. From Brian. Brian, that is. Yeah, so I can just answer I, it in 10 a seconds. <laughs> we'll be done. Uh, I need the answer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, first of all, so, Suffering sometimes is a consequence to our own choices, but not always. Mm. We live in a fallen world full of people struggling in their own depravity. And uh, I often talk about it being like a lake that's placid and calm. And whenever somebody throws one of their rocks in the lake, it creates these ripples. Mm-hmm. Well, for thousands of years of human history, people have been throwing their rocks in the lake and there's there's waves running into each other all over the place. Sometimes your rock hurts other people you don't even know. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes pain and suffering isn't a result of something we've done wrong or anything like that. Sometimes it's just, a it can be, sure. but sometimes it's just a result of living in a fallen world. And uh, he says, while pain is physical, suffering seems to be a mental condition. Right. Um I think that the two are not divorced.
0: Yeah, he's saying that internal hurt is yeah. almost really what gets him. Yeah.
1: Suffering suffering uh whether it be physical or emotional is part of living in this fallen world. And the idea of how do I ac- how do I practice acceptance in the face of, you know, emotional or mental suffering? Um well I tell you this is where James says, you know, count wow. it joy when you go through difficult times because the testing of your a faith, tough one. which is a gift, <laughs> yep, you know, brings, you know, this maturity in your faith. And so for me, the times in my life where I have suffered the most emotionally were the times I felt closest to dad,
0: mm-hmm. heavenly dad. I love how he says to my my moment of surrender. I never thought about my You mean story. that moment of turn. That's right.
1: A that moment of turn.
0: I wouldn't have thought of it that it was way. was prayer. It really was. Well, in the same way we talked about recovery and you saying supernatural, I mean, when when you're told this is how it's going to roll, it is a supernatural moment.
1: The last thing he says, it's often difficult to interrupt my thinking in these times. I think what I hear Brian saying is when I'm going through the mental part of the suffering, it's really hard to think about Christ. And um, I would say the fact that you can even write that email and recognize that I struggle with thinking about Christ when I'm suffering is a sign, Brian, that God is intervening in your life and is enlightening you and is making you alive and giving you eyes to see truth. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next time you feel like you're going through some suffering, uh, Christ reveals his presence to you.
0: Where do you turn, right? He's turning in the right. I think that's the great part. You ask the question, I don't know what to do here. God, please help me. So, well, that's a great way to end our show for today. So on behalf of Pastor Joe Davis, our studio producer, Wayne Delair, and the entire team at Jump Dog Audio Productions, I'm Jim Hobbs. See you next week. And as we just said, whatever you do, suffering or not, keep looking to Christ so he can keep you living the grace life.